Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm your host, journalist Holly Rubenstein, and here each week I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with, to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list. We'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. Today, we're diving into the awe-inspiring world of high-altitude adventure. Our subject is a man whose name is synonymous with daring expeditions and summit triumphs, the legendary climber and adventurer Kenton Cool. With 17 successful ascents of the mighty Mount Everest to his name, along with many other mountain peaks around the globe, including the seven summits, the highest mountains on each of the seven traditional continents, Kenton, you could say, is not just cool by name, but by nature. You'll have heard him mentioned on previous podcast episodes with Serranal Fines and Ben Fogel. Kenton has accompanied them on some of their most challenging ascents. Ben Fogel summited Everest with Kenton and... Kenton led Serrano finds up the north face of the Eiger and to the summit of Mount Everest too. His adventure-filled life began in the UK, but he quickly found his heart in the Himalayas. He brings to life some of his most incredible adventures today and the valuable lessons he learned along the way. So let's hear from him now. Kenton Cool, welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. It is amazing to see you today. How are you? How's your day been so far? Yeah, it's been good. It's a Monday morning. I love Mondays. Uh, they're full of opportunity, uh, not just for the day, but for the week. Uh, and I'm normally pretty pumped on a Monday morning. And, and let me just give you an example. So this morning, I am now sat with you, uh, which is super exciting. But I've already had a, a, an hour-long meeting. Uh, I've been for my run. I've walked a dog. I've done school drop-off. And uh, I've cleaned up some of the gym area outside. So uh, Mondays well are my most, well, Monday mornings are my most productive. I drop off after lunchtime. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, but Mondays so far, so good. It can go downhill with, with, with this though. <laughs> <laughs> have you been traveling much this summer? Have you been, um, hmm. have you been away? Can you tell us a bit yeah, about I, what you've been up to? Uh, I have been around the UK on a lecture tour. Then I bounced almost immediately to Alaska. And I did like a mini uh, excursion to Alaska. What was that like? Oh, it is wonderful. Uh, I mean, please don't judge me. Uh, I do a lot of corporate speaking and I'm on various speaking circuits. And Alaska was, uh, I was on a cruise speaking. Cruising is perhaps not my thing. Mm -hmm. However, Mm -hmm. I totally see why people want to do it. Uh, It goes up, I think it's called the Insides Passage in Alaska. So the ship goes from Vancouver all the way up to the Hubbard Glacier. And you see like loads of wildlife. And I know that cruising and those big cruise ships have an environmental impact. Uh, that's certainly not lost on me. At the same time, uh, it's, it's quite an incredible experience. Yeah, because um, that is an, that's ways. a part of the world that is so hard to really like to, to, to see and cover a lot of ground. So many rem- remote parts. So what are the kind of things that you saw on that journey? Well, I mean, to, when you go up the Hubbard Glacier, and I forget what the uh, what the second one is called, uh, there is no way of accessing uh, those inlets or fjords, uh, if you want to call them that, uh, unless you are going by boat uh, or seaplane. I mean, even, even the capital of Alaska, I, I didn't know this. I just assumed the capital of Alaska was uh, was Anchorage, which I've been to a number of times on my way to climb Denali. Uh, but it's actually Juneau. And yeah. Juno, you can't access by road. You have <laughs> to go by boat or fly there. I, I, I don't know who, yeah, I don't know who came up with that idea for a capital city that you can't get to by road. And, and uh, you know, small towns like Ketchikan, uh, Skagway, they, 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 they are sort of frontier towns. I mean, Skagway, I think it's Skagway, uh, you know, was part of the Great Gold Rush, and you know, the town boomed during that period of time mm. uh, it, it, re- really interesting part of the world to visit i mean if you want to be um, you know if, if you want to be sort of pedantic about it you know you drop into some of these towns and you know most people don't go more than i think it's 800 yards away from the ship so you know you've, you've got to be actively 
wanting to seek out what the local community has on offer and, and things like that. You've got to get away from the immediate vicinity of where these ships berth. Um, and that there is a negative impact as well as a positive impact. I mean, Juno, I was chatting to uh, a couple of the local people in Juno, and they were saying at the, at the height of the season, they might get seven or eight of these, and they are big cruise ships coming in. Uh, Juno will have a you know 1.2, 1.3 million tourists a season coming in via the cruise ships. Yeah. For uh, a small that town, has, that's a lot. Yeah, that has an impact. And you know what I wanted to know was, well, does that do do those tourists have tourist spend? In which case, there's a positive there, and 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 they do to an extent. But a lot of the, and I'm not necessarily saying Cunard do this, but a lot of the uh, cruise companies own a lot of the businesses in the 800 meters that people would would walk to so the money's not necessarily going to the local community so if you do go on a cruise you know take the time to you know book uh, your sightseeing tours with local outfits not necessarily through the cruise ship you know take your time to get get away from that 800 yards or mile radius from the berth and, and go and see you know some of these towns for what they really are and, yeah. and spend your hard-earned cash in those areas because that's going to have more of a positive impact on the community that you're going to visit that's really really good advice noted yeah. right kenton today we are going to go on a journey through the seven chapters of your yeah, life's travel diaries some some real highs i imagine and potentially some lows as well well it, it, yeah it was i mean I, I, I was looking through these the other day it's like memory lane it's, it's, it's quite cool <laughs> well we're going to start at the very beginning chapter one is your earliest childhood travel memory what would you pick for that so i, I was thinking about this and it, it made me chuckle i mean we, we didn't really have very much money when we were growing up my father was unemployed for a lot of my childhood but uh, and we used to go to uh stay on a farm in west wales just outside cardigan uh every single year for the first two weeks of august this was our summer holidays uh we yeah. occasionally used to go down there in um uh in the autumn half term as well uh, and every holiday for my first 18 years was exactly this. Uh, and it was great. Uh, this is going to crop up a couple of times in these seven chapters. But my earliest memory, we had a uh, silver Toyota Corolla estate car, which we loaded to the gunnels. I mean, it was just above. I mean, I'm sure the exhaust pipe was almost touching the ground. And we used to travel from where I lived to, uh, to West Wales. And I remember, I don't know how old I was, but it's very early in the morning, which we used to do the drive early in the morning. And we'd we're like three miles from home. And I think dad went over, I don't think it was a speed hump, but something happened. And all four hubcaps of the car span off at the same time and came shooting past the car. And I just remember my father probably swearing or something like that. And he jumped out and he was trying to find the hubcaps at about half past four in the morning in people's gardens. (laughs) So he's rummaging through these gardens. And I just remember being sat in the back of the car with my, my, uh, my sister. (laughs) Because <laughs> my father was his great guy. That you know, grey areas. You know, he didn't break the law, but there's lots of grey areas in 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 our lives growing up. Mm-hmm. And yeah, rummaging around people's gardens, trying to find these damn hubcaps uh, to put back on the car. I think he found one out of four. Uh, but but that's one of my earliest so memories. You know, more than the holiday itself. More than sort of leaving early in the morning we used to have a bacon sandwich before we left and we used to stop at the uh, service station at by the seven bridge to split the journey up um and the other thing that we used to do is we used to have this big clock in the kitchen and we used to as a family of four of us used to try to guess what time the clock would run because you had to wind it up you know, what time the clock would, would would run out so we each <laughs> chose a time um but losing those hubcaps that's probably one of my earliest travel memories i mean i don't think cars even have hubcaps anymore do they yeah no. uh, that part of wales that comes up um, that's you know that is such a quintessentially british um summer holiday what was it like? Yeah. You know, did, is it a place that is somewhere you'd go back to now for a holiday? Oh, 100%. I mean, we, we have been back a little bit further south as a family. Well, well this leads on to our, 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 our chapter two in a way. Um, okay. Because my, you know, the, the place that I fell in love with you know, it is West Wales. Uh, and we can come on to that in a moment. But, but this area that, that we're talking about, you know, I went with a family relatively recently, slightly 
further south in Pembrokeshire as opposed to Cardiganshire. Um, I've climbed a lot on that southern Pembroke coast, so from Tenby all the way around to the inlet with Haverford West, that's fantastic. Some of the best sea cliff climbing in the world. Really? Uh, it's absolutely uh, unreal. Steep limestone cliffs, uh, sea crashing underneath you, or seals popping up to have a look to see what's going on. And it's actually where I proposed as well. Um, wow. I proposed to my wife. So Very it really is a special place. Go. Yeah, really? su- super, super special. I don't visit it enough these days, maybe because you know, I spent most of my childhood holidays there, if not all of them. So I do go further afield these days, but it's it's somewhere very close to my heart, for sure. Interesting what you say about the climbing. Are there some routes that are accessible for, you know, a more like entry level climber? Uh, absolutely. I mean, the, the sea cliffs, uh, limestone traditionally is quite steep rock. So you do need to be of a certain standard. Uh, but Pembroke, there's so many miles of, of cliff line there. Uh, certain areas are very well suited to the to the beginner. Uh, I mean, if, if anybody's thinking about going there, you know, I, I would highly recommend getting a local climbing guide. Uh, he or she can show you around. They will have all the ropes, all the harnesses, all the equipment. Because the thing with sea cliff climbing, the access can be difficult. You know, you've got to you've got to know what the tides are doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but also, sort of sea breezes can make the rock almost unclimbable. You get this strange, almost grease-like um, substance that sublimates on the limestone cliffs, making it you know total misery. So, local knowledge, like like almost everywhere that you go, local knowledge is invaluable, and, mm. and tapping into to that knowledge is you know will, will raise anybody's experience by a factor of 10 or 100 it really would now book yourself a, a day long afternoon long climbing course I highly recommend it mm. and I mean when you were there as a child you know were you were you climbing was it an adventurous no, outdoor childhood oh it, it was always adventurous uh, it was very adventurous uh, childhood uh, I didn't start climbing until I was uh, 17 18 uh, but we certainly walk up the Priscilla Hills uh, the Priscilla Hills are uh, as there's a range of mountains, then the name gives it away, the Presidi Hills. But but for me as a youngster, you know, these were quite adventurous places. And the Presidis is actually where the rocks and Stonehenge came from. Really? The, 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 yeah, the, the Blue Mountains. And it, the mind boggles how, I don't know how, how old Stonehenge is, but I mean, we all know it's super, super old. I mean, how on earth they got those huge lumps of rock from the Presidis all the way to Salisbury, Salisbury Plain, I mean, yeah, astonishing. I, 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 I just, just can't imagine it. But no, it, it was always, yeah, we, we, we spent a lot of time outside. Uh, we used to go down to the beaches. There's some fantastic beaches uh, in West Wales. And occasionally you do get the blue sky days, mm-hmm. uh, which is worth going to the beach, which is lovely. Uh, and a lot of walking. Uh, and I, I, I remember a lot of eating sardine sandwiches inside a misted up car as it was peeing down with rain. So <laughs> you do get you do get a mixture of, of, of everything there. Yeah. And so you mentioned for chapter two, the first place you fell in love with. Wales has a big part to play there. Oh, it's got a huge part. And, you know, you have to remember I was born in Slough. Uh, and I was hardly likely to uh, fall in love with Slough. You know, apologies <laughs> if anybody loves Slough. Um <laughs> Like John um, Betjeman, come friendly bombs and fall on slough. Yeah, come fall on slough. So I was sat down and I was going through this the other day. And I think what, one of the reasons why West Wales is so close to my heart is partly it is beautiful. But but more than that, it was when the family came together. So there was obviously mum, dad, and I've got a younger sister. And it was time, you know, dad had a standard nine to five job when he was working mum used to work uh, she did some shift work in uh, a local supermarket and then worked in local greengrocers and both parents were heavily involved with the scouts which I, which I was involved with so so we were actually a very busy family but those two weeks in Wales was downtime and you know you didn't have the, the mobile phone back then so when it was when you were on holiday you were truly on a holiday uh, and I just remember these hugely romantic times or I look back on it with a romanticism and we were there all together and we used to do these very family orientated things um I I remember my my parents used to 
peel the labels off the wine bottles and stick them on the uh, there's like a glass partition in the little cottage that we used to rent and we used to put the wine um, labels up on there and they were left on there year after year and we used mm. to hide coins because you, you used to have to put I think it was 5p or 10p in an electricity meter for the uh, for the electrics in the place so we always used to leave a little stack of coins somewhere uh, year on year we used to shower outside with a hose pipe uh, and the cottage was right by a working farm and there was it was owned by Mr. and Mrs. Lloyd and there was Bob Dog who used mm-hmm. to destroy all my footballs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was just this wonderful time of being young and carefree. That sounds lovely. I yeah, love that. Very, very nice. Um, and you mentioned that you didn't start climbing until you were in your late teens. This is the chapter mm. about, you know, falling in love. You know, was there a a moment that you fell in love with climbing and you realized right that I want this to be my career well no the career came later um almost through a lack of inspiration for anything else um <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm wondering if you can read my notes because your segue is <laughs> your, your segue is so beautifully into what's coming next <laughs> um I, I, yeah, I can't, can't believe you're doing this so well um <laughs> because vying with you know where did i first fall in love with was pakistan uh, which i suppose actually moves us on to chapter three in a way which um i mean forgive me i didn't write down the chapter titles chapter three was the place where you learned the most about yourself oh uh, yeah okay mm. exactly so 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 chapter three kind of links to what you've just said so age 19 I think I was 19. I went to Pakistan and it was a climbing expedition. So I started climbing about 17. Age 19, I put together a, an expedition to some, some unclimbed peaks in Pakistan. And we, we, we had a phenomenal time. Pakistan actually was vying West Wales for chapter two, you know, the place that I fell in love because I fell in love with the people of, of Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Possibly more than just the people of Pakistan, the, the people of, of of mountainous or the people of the Himalayas. As a very naive boy that went to school in High Wycombe, grew up just outside Slough and used to holiday in West Wales, going to Pakistan was a bit of an eye-opener, to say yeah. the least. Yeah. Uh, and, and we did everything on a, as a student. We did everything on this huge budget. When I say huge budget, it, it wasn't a big budget. It was a tiny, tiny budget. And, and let, let me just um, explain that a little bit because I spent seven weeks in Pakistan in the first uh, university holiday. Mm-hmm. And seven weeks in Pakistan, including the flight, was just over £500. Mm-hmm. Now, admittedly, this was 1993, so it's a little t- while ago now. But it just shows that adventure and travel does not necessarily need to be eye-wateringly expensive. So you can go to these amazing places and have life-changing experiences yeah. pretty much on a shoestring. In yeah. fact, on doing things on a shoestring yeah. are often the way that you are going to engage most with the local community. Mm. Uh, or in my mind, they are anyway. So so we were doing everything to try to save cash. So, for instance, we didn't fly because we wanted to go to North Pakistan to go climbing. Um, so we didn't fly to Islamabad, which would be the obvious choice. And what I would do now, we flew to Karachi, which is in the south of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's I think Sindh is now on the foreign office like red list because uh, it's like anarchy there. They, they hold up whole trains with rocket launchers and rob everybody and that sort of stuff. Um, so we go there and, and, and then we buy... I think it was second class tickets on the train and we traveled right through Sindh on the train with all our kit and, 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 you know, age 19. Um, and it was super hot and super sweet. And I've just got this memory of the sun's just coming up, you know, as it does in the, the Indian subcontinent, that area, just, just that there's, there is something special about sunrises and sunsets there. Maybe it's the dust, maybe it's the position on the planet, but, the, but, I just remember being so deadly tired. I've been, we were on the train for 26 hours. Um, and what and, landscape are you going through to get uh, to this point? It's, it's, you're going across the, the plains in the middle of nowhere, and it's as hot as hell. And you know, we've been through the night, and it is a sleeper, but there's six of us in a four-person. You know, this is second class. 
And I just remember the, the, the chai waller running up and down, I don't know, five o'clock in the morning, we pulled into some station somewhere and he's running up and down and he's just screaming, chai, 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 chai. And he's got these super hot, sweet, super strong tea and he's ladling it out and, and it, the milk's forming that, that sort of scum on top. You get like a skin mm. and he serves it in these little metal mugs or, or cups, stainless steel cups that you burn your lips on and, mm. It, it was just, it was just incredible, and I would always have that memory of that of this sunrise and the six of us, all exhausted, covered in dust, dehydrated, hungry, thirsty, and the chai waller, just incredible. Oh wow, what a picture! Uh, but but that expedition because we did everything wrong, yet we did everything right. You know, we got on a public bus. Once we got to Islamabad, we then had to drive up the Karakoram Highway. Uh, so that's a public bus. We didn't hire what we should have done. We hire our own private minibus. We got on the public bus and it kept having punctures and that took 29 hours and I got really sick on it. Yeah, you know, we didn't, we didn't hire a cook for the expedition. We did all the cooking ourselves and we bought all the food in Gilgit ourselves and going around all the markets trying to work out how much rice you need to buy or how many chickpeas you need or, hmm. uh, I'm, I'm 19. You know, yeah. I, I've, I've, I grew up at home. Uh, Mum did all the cooking. And then there's the expedition itself. And as I said, I, I fell in love with the Pakistani people. I fell in love with the food. Well, the food that you got, not the food that you got from the market. That you uh, no, not, the, not the food that we were cooking. No, 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 no. no. But, but the, the food that you could get in the hotels. And, we, you know, we ate a lot of street food. Uh, I'm still a firm believer that. You know, eating on the street is one of the best places to eat. It doesn't matter where you go. I, I, I'm big into street food. Um, I think that's where you get the, the best flavours. That's where you can connect the with the community. Taste. Yeah, 100%. Just backtracking a little bit, I, what, how did you go from being a climbing novice suddenly being in Pakistan and attempting a first descent? Like, How does that work? Um ambition beyond my experience <laughs> really it was just um, yeah. it was kind of pretty, naivety pretty and ambition basically yeah um at Leeds University there was this amazing climbing community that was super super energetic and enthusiastic and you couldn't help get caught up in that um right. and this was pre-internet times well the internet was just beginning to emerge but this is pre-internet times you couldn't look up things so everybody had books and the books at the time, my heroes were the likes of Doug Scott and Chris Bonington. And, and their name was synony synonymous with the Himalayas. And little naive Kenton is like, you know, screw climbing on the little gritstone or limestone outcrops of Yorkshire. I want to go to the big mountains. I want to go to the Himalayas. And you know, my, my ambition was way in excess <laughs> of my experience. That said... We had a fantastic experience. We did some new new routes. We went trekking over the DSI Plains, uh, which is this beautiful part of Pakistan, just south of Skardu. And for me, it was a life-changing. It really was. A, it was a life-changing expedition. And not necessarily for the climbing, uh, but for everything else. That's brilliant. And then what you didn't look back, it was from that you had the climbing bug. And... Yeah, 100%. Um, I mean, I, I didn't make climbing my profession until I was about 30. So I spent 10 years just following my own ambition. Um, and that's where I got a lot of my experience, which then segued really nicely into what I do now, which is the professional mountain guide. Mm. And, you know, speaking about learning about yourself now as, as a professional mountain guide, as I mentioned in my introduction, um, you have, climbed Mount Everest you know innumerable times uh, and you've described yourself uh, in previous podcasts I've listened to in interviews as a, as a very emotional guy so how do you keep those emotions in check when you're in areas like the death zone on Mount Everest for example well unfortunately they always have a habit of spilling out at some stage <laughs> um, but uh, you know if you know how to control emotion and if you know how to manage it, it can actually be a, a, a bonus. It, it can be a, um, it can be a positive thing. Uh, I mean, I think showing vulnerability is, is empowering rather than the, the opposite. Uh, and I think a lot of my 
my clients, I do appreciate that I wear my, you know, my, my thoughts and my emotions on my sleeve, you know, whether it be me jumping up and down sometimes, uh, which I can do when things don't go quite our way, or, or whether it's you know, the emotion of reaching the summit or the safe conclusion of an expedition. That said, if we use Summit Day on Everest as the example, I, I, you know, one needs to be pinpoint focused. Um, I use the term binary thinking a lot. And binary thinking is just focusing on what's really, really important. And we hear that a lot in the corporate world, you know, focus on what's in front of you and all these sorts of things. But, you know, it's certainly with, you know, you sat at your desk with emails and things coming in. You know, you could argue, well, you know, binary, binary thinking doesn't really have, it's not that important. Whereas on Everest, it's super important. Mm. Uh, even with supplementary oxygen, when you're in the death zone, you're starving your brain of O2. And the first thing that gets affected is your ability for rational thought, cognitive thinking. Mm. It, it, it gets inhibited by mm. lack of oxygen. Yeah. Uh, and that's what we're doing. So, so binary thinking is, is, you know, there's five or six things that I'm concerned about. You know, how much oxygen we have, the time, overhead conditions, underfoot conditions, uh, mental, physical state of, uh, of the client and the immediate Sherpa team and where they are, you know, where they are on the mountain. That is it. And the other thing which I think is desperately important is to eradicate emotion, emotional thought process and replace it with logical thought process. Uh, and that's something which I've managed to uh, teach myself over like 20 years or so being in the big mountains because mm. if emotional thought process gets in the way uh, and if it influences decision-making in the death zone, you're potentially going to make a poor decision. So can you give me an example of what you mean by that? Well, Like what would um, be an emotional thought over a logical one? So, so, so logic is what's happening in real time. It, it's hard information that's directly in front of you. So it is you know, what the weather is, you know, what the immediate weather forecast is, how much oxygen I, I, we have left in the, uh, in the O2 tanks, you know, physical state of client. You know, that's real information right in front of you. That's hard, real-time intel. Yeah. Yeah. Emotional behavior might be thinking about my daughter. Oh, is she having a good day at school? Oh, you know, th- those those thoughts that can generate a chink in your armor because let's face it on summit or day of Everest, your armor needs to be up and it needs mm. to be best part of bulletproof. Mm. And if there are any chinks then those chinks have a, a horrible way of, of getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. If, if your mind starts to wander, you know, back to jazz, you know, you know my beautiful wife is like Monday morning and you start thinking about school drop-off. Oh God, you know, I'd love to be at school drop-off. You know, I adore doing school drop-off or pick-up or whatever it, it may be. Yeah. All of a sudden that's going to start tugging, but certainly at my heart, heartstrings. And then am I going to, am I going to make a right decision with that swirling about in the back of my brain? Yeah, because actually what that thought process is telling me is that I want to get home as quickly as possible. I I want to be part of the school run. I want to be part of making breakfast for my son or my daughter. You know, I I want to be out hug and hold my wife and I want to be be, be, with my friends. I don't want this hardship. Uh, I I don't want this grind of going back up to to Everest, putting one foot in front of the other in the pitch black, seeing a thunderstorm 200 miles away. You know, is that thunderstorm coming our way? You know, how's the client? I'm really cold. Uh, You know, conscious about the number of, you know, that's all alien. That's all well out of anybody's comfort zone. That's mm. hard. Mm-mm. And on the other hand, home. Mm, that's really snuggly. That's comfortable. I just want to be there. Okay, guys, let's turn around. You know, yeah. That's the danger of emotional thought process. And you know, perhaps it's not the best example, but that shows you how it can erode the fortitude that you need to be able to get through hard things. So, yeah, and we all experience like the ultimate hard things. mindfulness. Yeah, exactly. And, and we, we all suffer from hardship and go through hard times. You don't need to be climbing Mount Everest. You could be on your morning run. 
you know, it, or whatever it is, you could be doing something at work that you don't like to do. You, you know, perhaps you've got to go and tell Sid down the corridor that his work's crap and he has to try harder and that's going to be a really difficult conversation. I don't really want to do it. So, you know, the logic in me is I should do that. The emotion in me, is, oh, I really don't want to do it. It's going to be really hard. It's, 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 okay, I won't do it. But, you know, I send an email. Mm-hmm. Because that'd be much, much easier. I can hide behind my email. But the logic is go and have that conversation. You know, mm. Just just go and do it and get mm. it done. Mm. And then life's mm. going to be so much clearer afterwards. You know, and then if you look at the Everest one, you know, I just want to be at home where it's all snuggly and everything else. Okay, we're going to call and we're going to go home. You know, he, whether you like Lance Armstrong or not, I think he came up with the phrase of pain is temporary, but quitting is forever. Now you get home mm-hmm. and you're twiddling your thumbs at home going, I don't think we made the right decision. Yeah. You know, I, th- I think emotion got in the way on that one. And we should, yeah, we should have summited. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK. And in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels easier even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Uh, Spencer Matthews was a guest on my podcast a couple of seasons back and he was in part talking about his forthcoming documentary at the time Finding Michael and and his experiences on Everest And and then I went and watched it you know when it came out and I was surprised that you know when they were filming their attempts to find him how many dead bodies were literally dotted over the mountain that they were like oh no that it's not him that's that that's not him that's another one I mean that's not a normal part of life to kind of see bodies dotted up a mountain like how do you process that as a kind of relatively regular part of your professional life well I I think there's a couple of ways you can look at it is you know unfortunately death is part of all our lives uh it's the only given that we have uh and it, it surrounds us way more than we think it does uh and what I mean by that is, uh, you know, we've all lost loved ones. Death is an unfortunate part of life. And one of the reasons why life is so rich, um, because we never quite know when it's, when it's going to happen. Mm. Uh, I mean, I, I've seen my fair share of death in the big mountains. Um, and not only have I lost family members, but, you know, I've lost a lot of friends in the big mountains. You never get d- dumbed dumb to it this year on Everest I, yeah one body uh, I saw one body 
Right. Uh, and it's a body that's been there since 2019, Don, uh, who's just, just underneath the, the Hillary step. And you know it's there, so you can brief the client that we're going to come around the corner in a minute and there's going to be a body that's going to be sat underneath the step um, with the oxygen mask still on and da-da-da-da-da. Oh, that's um, a lot. So, I mean, I, I don't quite know if the production companies will hand it up a little bit there are bodies there, but you've actually got to go out your way to see them other than Don's. Don's, right. you've almost got to step past. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I think being briefed on it, knowing it's there, then then you can summon the courage to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, it, but, you know, it is dangerous. 23 people lost their lives on that mountain this year. Uh, mm-hmm. So for whatever we read in the press about the queues and Everest is, is simply a walk well, yeah, it's not the most technical mountain in the world, but death still occurs. You know, up high, death occurs on every mountain. How you prepare for it? Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I've had people die in my arms. I pulled Sherpas off of fixed ropes. We've been hit by stones, and you can imagine the the trauma that that causes to one's head. Uh, yeah. I mean, really ugly, ugly scenes. Did, has it ever made you want to to stop climbing? No. No, no, if anything, quite the opposite. And, yeah, I've said this before. I think it's only when you really push to the edge of what we do and you stare into the abyss, you know, stare into the darkness, i.e. you push yourself so far that you are teetering on the here and the there. Uh, and you look into the darkness and you realise how illuminated life is and how rich life is and how life needs to be lived Mm. as much as you can because it's only when you realize that it can be extinguished really really quickly and you know i personally don't believe in the afterlife i I don't think we go to a a beautiful place afterwards i you know i'm more logically based and you know i think once life is extinguished we're not going to get a second go but you've got to push yourself to that point to realize that life is fragile mm. so it's uh, almost and, and a then, motivating factor yeah 100%. yeah yeah uh, 100 i mean we've been talking about everest chapter four is your all-time favorite destination Kent. Oh. I, I wondered was it oh. was is it everest where is it no it's not everest no. um I, I i don't even have nepal down here but perhaps i should i mean nepal is my second home uh, and i'm super fond of it maybe because i go there so often that I, it didn't necessarily come into my thought process because it's perhaps not quite as sexy or as glamorous to me as it really is. Um, so I, I kind of, I started big to start with. I mean, Pakistan, I love Pakistan. I've only been there three or four times. I, I love to go back more, explore more. And I think one of the reasons why I got Pakistan perhaps more than Nepal is because there was a greater sense of unknown to me. And Nepal's pretty geared up for the tourist. And mm. I've got a great agent over there, Iswari Powdy, Himalayan Guides. And no matter where I am in the country, I could give him a ring. And no matter what it is, it will be sorted out for me. Uh, which a lot of people go, wow, that's a great comfort tool to have. And mm. it's fantastic. Mm. But I like the jeopardy that comes with travel. Uh, and Pakistan is full of it, in a good way. Uh, you know, you get yourself into all these scenarios and you're like, oh, my God, how did I get here? How did I must get us out, out of here? And yeah, I don't have such a good grasp on logistics and things. So I mean, I've got, it's more of a challenge. It's more of a challenge. And because yeah. of it, it's more of a challenge. I find it more rewarding. And mm. because I know the country less, I've not traveled that extensively in Pakistan. Yes, I've gone north to south. I've spent a lot of time in the mountains. But you know, I really want to go to Peshawar, for instance, which is right on the Afghan border. You know, I, I want to go you know, further further east in the um, uh, in the Karakoram Mountains, you know, right up to the Indian border. Uh, I've only just scratched the surface. Nepal, I've been to you know, a lot. I've also got Bhutan down here. I mean, Bhutan's oh. a country I've been to quite a few times now uh, i've traveled north south east west i've been to really remote villages i've got beautiful friends there 
and it is a unique country in the way that it's developed and it's developing. I mean, to use gross national happiness above G, uh, GDP as an index of development, I find deeply, deeply interesting. You know, so I interesting. With, yeah, I struggle with Western society. I mean, how can you have year-on-year on, year on year growth? I mean, it's a fallacy. Yeah. Whereas, you know, GNH seems much more grounded you know, rather than just looking at numbers. Um, and do you feel that kind of palpably when you you know are exploring the country do you do you do you feel the the shift in perspective there that you know that is what is prioritized well i I think what you see or what you feel in uh bhutan a lot is you know as soon as you get out of timpu and say paro uh you know you are in quite remote villages even boomsang which is one of the bigger uh, uh, towns in the, in the centre of the country, uh, you know, they, they're pretty remote, uh, and all of a sudden there's a much more community-minded society, and I think with that it it brings a certain joy uh, to to those within the community because there's there's this thing called connection. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and yeah, okay, I'm holding up my phone now. And you know, we, we feel that we're connected through the phone, but actually we're not. Uh, connection is, is is proper human interaction. And mm. you know, if you go back, we don't need to go back that many generations. You know, we, we're tribal. We, we need that connection. And that loss of connection, I believe, certainly in my opinion, you know, makes us quite a um, relatively unhappy society. Uh, looking more at the individual rather than the community. Mm. And, you know, GNH is built on uh, nine pillars. And, you know, and one of those is, is, is the community, the importance of the community, and, and, and also the way that it interacts with the natural, resor- uh, the, the natural resources, you know, the, the way that they live in harmony. Uh, I'm also quite in awe that you can have a, um, I'm going to get the name wrong now, um, a, a, I'm trying to think of how the government works. It's a democratic monastic monarchy or something like that. So, so you got you got you got the elected government, you've got the religious body, and you've got the monarchy as well. Mm-hmm. And because there's these three different parties, they keep one another in check all the time. So, I mean, unlike our political party here, which seems to have free reign to just you know, excuse the language, screw anything up and pass bills that that really. You know, make no sense to anybody all of a sudden you know, you've got these three you know three bodies which which self-check the whole time and and now i'm not saying that bhutan is without its issues i mean you could look back to k4 the fourth king and you know and there was like ethnic cleansing and you know, the deportation of load of you know, nepalis and, and things like this when i say ethnic cleansing i don't mean there's genocide or but they were deported they were they, they got rid of a load of um you know, you know nepali uh, ancestry or ancestored um, Bhutanese. Right, right, um, so, right. so, so it's yeah. not without its own issues like any other country. However, I think there's a lot we can learn in the West from Bhutan. So I've definitely got Bhutan down here. Um, but then I thought, well, maybe I need to um, you know, look, you know, instead of from 40,000 feet, maybe I should look from 5,000 feet down. And I've also <laughs> got Col- Colorado in the US. Oh, yeah. Uh, a, a I state love Colorado that, too. Uh, I do. I mean, it's the sunshine, the skiing, the climbing, the mountain biking. I mean, it's it's got it all, uh, and fantastic access with Denver Airport, you know, half yeah. United. Um, and I've also got, you know, and and then from five thousand feet, I came down to one thousand feet, and it's a place I've only just scratched the surface. And believe me, I know it's not a true representation of the country, but I got Cape Town. I went to Cape Town for the first time last year. Oh my goodness. What an amazing city. If you're into the outdoors, it's got it all. Yeah. Uh, and it's got great food. Uh, it's relatively cheap to the to the, you know, European travelers. I know it's getting more expensive. Um, I mean, some people say, well, it's not a safe city. Every time I've been there, I felt, you know, I felt safe. It's got great biking. It's got great coastline. It's got great surfing. It's got great rock climbing. It's got great paragliding. It's just it takes all the boxes. Yeah. <laughs> and the weather, oh, Oh my oh. goodness, the weather's amazing. Um, so, those yeah, are some I, I was amazing all time favorites. I absolutely uh, love your choices. The like, I, I was struggling to pin it down to one, I'm afraid. <laughs> no, I, I, I love a smorgasbord like that, and I would say that all of them are just so interesting in their own right. 
Uh, Bhutan is a really interesting one because it's certainly been like, so I'm not a climber, so I wouldn't be choosing a destination based off of that. But even so, I would think that for me, Bhutan, the kind of spirituality of it, the beauty of it, as you say, the people, um, the diversity of the landscape, I, I, it's certainly one that's very, very appealing. All of them are. But that one mm. is one that is, I think, a bucket yeah, list I mean, destination but, for but, sure. But, but, but Bhutan's incredible. You, you can't help but, I mean, I'm not particularly religious. You probably picked up on that. But I do believe in a spirituality. I do perhaps believe in a higher being, uh, not necessarily the godlike figure that a lot of us would worship. Um, but you go to these places, even like Pakistan, you know, winning the mountains. Um, but Bhutan especially so. Mm. You go to, you, you step off the plane. In, in fact, I think Bhutan is the only international airport I've ever been where people are walking down the steps and the there's always a queue to get off the plane because as soon as somebody steps out the door onto the steps, they stop and they start looking around. Wow. Because it's incredible. Because it's just um, so beautiful. It's beautiful and the clean air and it, it, it's, yeah, and then the walk across the tarmac to get to the uh, terminal and everybody's stopping to take photographs and, and, and looking around. It's, it's just off the charts. I mean, how many people do that at Heathrow? How many do that in Frankfurt? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you don't even do it in Cape Town and Cape Town is one of my like top destinations. Uh, it, it's got everything. It's got, it, it, it's got history. It's got, a fantastic trekking. I mean, the food, mm, uh, but you know, it's interesting food. I love spicy food and food there is quite spicy. Uh, it's got culture. It's, it, it's, oh, it's fab. It, it's, it's beautiful. Um, yeah. Can't, can't recommend it enough. And you've made a career out of discovering hidden gems, essentially. I mean, chapter five, your hidden gem, a place that you you love that my listeners might not have been to or might not know very much about. I mean, I would imagine that you have a, a, a huge amount of places that you might be able to pick f- from for this yeah, one. Yeah, so, 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 so this, but, but, but this might be, uh, I gave this a lot of thought. And I don't know if it's a hidden gem or an overlooked gem. The European Alps in summer. Now, a lot of us perhaps go to the Alps in winter to go skiing. Mm -hmm, A lot of mm -hmm. us probably fly over the Alps to go to Greece or maybe Turkey or somewhere like that for our summer holidays. But the European Alps, especially in summer, I think are unparalleled with the opportunity to do whatever it is that you as an individual or family want to do. So let me just clarify this. Generally, the weather is off the charts good. Blue skies, high pressure, not, you know, great great temperatures. This year, okay, it's a bit oscaccio, uh, sitting like 40 plus degrees, but that's a little bit unusual. Um, mm. You know, it's super lush. It's really green. Uh, it looks beautiful. In terms of adventurous sports, there's mountain biking, via ferrata, there's trekking. You know, the food is generally fantastic. I mean, a lot of it is like sort of high mountain food. So there's cheeses and so, I'm plant-based, by the way, so I'm a vegan. But, you know, there's great cheeses and and uh, saucissons and, and breads. You know, the wine is amazing. You know, and the Alps is a big area. You know, it stretches essentially from the Julian Alps in Slovenia, you know, right down almost to the Mediterranean coast uh, in France. It's a big swathe. So, like the wine regions are just and the and the diverse and the beer. I love beer. You know, it's there's all these different types of beer and and there, there's beaches. There's there's lakes to swim in. It, it, it's just yeah. all there and those that know of it will go year on year we, we go every year i mean at the start really? of this, we talked about you know what have you been doing this year i mean we spent two weeks in Majev. um you know, Majev in the summer. oh mm. it's it's divine uh you know i mean you don't need to climb big mountains in the alps you don't need to be climbing mont blanc you know i took the children up to a little uh mountain hut above solange it was like an hour and a half two hour walk there we spent the night in, in the hut, you know, eat, eating local fare, and you know, potatoes, and you know, we didn't really cheese because we're vegan. But you know, and you can hear the cowbells outside, and then we we wild swimming in lakes, and it's beautiful. Oh. 
And so funny. I literally had a conversation with my husband yesterday about how we wanted to to do that next summer. So I'm going to be picking up on these tips that you've mentioned. Definitely. Yeah, it, it's great. Is it a hidden gem? Well, probably not. But I think it's overlooked. Uh, you know, and Certainly if you go because down there, it's, it's seen as seasonal destination and, and actually and, what you're saying is and, that. And a little bit. And if, if, if you go there now, uh, when like the French holiday, if you go to the French Alps, for instance, the French holidays have come to an end, you know, the, the, it's beginning to cool down a little bit, give it an, well, because of the heat shock this year, the, the leaves are already changing colour. But the autumn time, can be sensationally beautiful with all the all the autumnal colours. You know, it's cooling down, let you know, less busy, but still warm enough to go wild swimming. You can still do the Via Ferratas. You can still get up into the snow line if you want to. Uh, it, it, it's, it's fab. It really is. So, uh, yeah, I scratched my head and I was thinking Bhutan. I was thinking Argentina. I was thinking Terra de Fuego and all these places. But the French Alps, and, you know, if, if you're a UK listener... You can load the car and depending where you live you in the UK, there, yeah. you can be there in like 8, 12, 13 hours, um, yeah. right in the middle of the Alps. Yeah. Oh, love it. Love it. Well, in complete contrast to that, our penultimate chapter, Kenton, is chapter six. That is yeah, the your worst, worst traveling travel experience. <laughs> yeah, your travel nightmare. It's going to be my first trip up the Karakoram Highway. This is going back to Pakistan. It's all linked, isn't it? It's all interconnected. Uh, and <laughs> my first trip up the Karakoram Highway, age 19, you know, as I've already said, we flew Uzbekistan Airways to get to Islamabad. By the time we spent like 12 hours in Islamabad, uh, we got on a train. I think I mentioned the train, train was 26 hours up to, Isla- uh, up to Islamabad. Uh, we get to Islamabad, we spent 10 hours in a bus station waiting for the public bus. The public bus then took 29 hours up the Karakoram Highway. Somewhere in that travel, young Kenton, who's never been outside of Europe really, gets his first real travel bug. Um, <laughs> and it's carnage. A rite of passage you don't oh, want to be God. getting. So imagine we, we, we finally get on the bus. And I forget exactly what it was, but somehow the buses, the, the, the seat numbers are, the number on the back of the seat relates to the seat in front. So there's there's some confusion about whose seats are whose, and the locals are getting quite agitated. And then I throw up everywhere. Um, and oh, it's God. like, well, just take whichever seat you want. Um, <laughs> and to give you some idea how bad I was, when we finally got to Gilgit, which is when we got off the bus, um, the boys all went out for dinner. Uh, I couldn't face it. And when they came back, they found me unconscious, wrapped around the, the loo uh, with you know, poo and vomit. And like, it just, I mean, I was oh properly not And this is before well. your climb? This is before we even got there. And meanwhile, not the best I mean, start for you. I just remember being dragged off the bus. And the locals were great. This is what I mean about community. And they would take me yeah. off, off and they would buy me Sprite and put salt in the Sprite to try to keep me rehydrated. Because every time we stopped, I'd be sick. I would be running off to the bushes. Uh, and all I remember is, is about one, two o'clock in the morning, and we got a puncture. And they're trying to repair the, the puncture at the side of the Karakoram Highway, which is one of the most epic roads known to mankind. Now, and it's all hot and it's noisy. Even at one o'clock in the morning, it's about 25 degrees and super sticky. And they're there, they light a fire and they're with like, like tire levers trying to get this tire off this bloody bus. And it's really threadbare. And I was like hallucinating by this day, thinking, <laughs> what is going on? You know, and, yeah. and it's that emotion thing again. I'm thinking, why don't I just go to Ibiza like any other 19-year-old? Why am I here <laughs> in the middle of Christ knows where? So sleep deprived, can't keep any food down, can't keep any liquid down. Without a shadow of a doubt, my worst travel nightmare ever um <laughs> and then it but, turned into your to your all-time best but, 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 as well at, so i love that at the same time this is what i mean you know, you, you've got to have these adversities to to to, to learn and to it. develop yeah. and to appreciate it for sure but yeah that was a bad journey up the kkh i've done it a <laughs> number of times since and we've always gone we just hired a private minivan <laughs> <laughs> very 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 wise oh, Kenton, yeah. it's been so fun chatting to you today so much fun our final chapter chapter seven is the destination that's at the top of your bucket list where uh, would you love to go that you've not yet been again i thought hard about this i mean i i, I i'm lucky i've been to a lot of places um 
I think I need to explore South Africa more. I've been to I've been to the Northern Cape and I stayed on a friend's that you know they call it a homestead ranch thingy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love climbing. South Africa's got some amazing climbing. I've only experienced Cape Town and the Northern Cape. I, I, I'd love to to travel through South Africa on a climbing trip. I mean, the, the Cedarburg, the Drakensberg. Uh, there's even some ice climbing, believe it or not, in South Africa if the wow. seasons are right. Uh, and it's very, very adventurous. You know, you, you need a four by four to get around. Um, you, you know, it, it, it can be super hot. You know, it can be quite chilly. It can be super windy. So you, you need you, you need to you need that local knowledge that I keep referring to. But then I've also got written my notes. I quite like to go back to Antarctica. I've not explored the peninsula mm. in Antarctica. Um, so um, the peninsula is different. To, so what part have you seen thus far? So, so I've been in, in I, I sort of, I've been to the pole. I've climbed the highest point in, um, on the continent, which is Mount Vincent. You know, I've been to um, uh, Queens Maudland. But the peninsula is, is where quite a lot of people go. The peninsula is a bit that juts out north and the, some of the cruise ships go down there and things like that. Mm-hmm. But it, it's, it's the junction between uh, the sea and the ice. And there is this, this little portion where there is a, a heap of wildlife exists because as soon as you get inland at all, there is knackle. There's nothing. It's just white. It's a white desert. That's, right, that's all right. it is. I know it's, it's a, but there's nothing, not just nothing. Whereas that peninsula holds all the all, all the wildlife, and I'd love to explore that. But but then I mean, this is the issue. I mean, I, I I've only got those two written down here, but I'm thinking, you know, I, I'd love to explore the north side of Everest. You know, let's bring Everest into it. I don't particularly want to climb on the north side of Everest, um, but I'd love to go to explore where Mallory and and Wakefield and Howard Somerville were exploring back in 1922 and 24 and those mm. early expeditions. They all went round to Tibet from Darjeeling. I've never been to Darjeeling. You see, this is the issue with a podcast like this. As soon as you spark that, I've never been to Darjeeling in India. I've always wanted to go to Darjeeling. Um, yeah. Some people say it's not quite the place it once was. You know, the the hilltop retreat for the British Raj to escape the heat and things. It's yes. a bit ramshackle now. But I don't mind that. You know, mm. to retrace the steps of those early expeditions, which I'm so in love with, you know, entering you know, in, in, almost into Sikkim and then round into Tibet and round onto the north side, you know, through the Tibetan plateau. I just touched upon that a little bit. That would be an amazing place to go as well uh, i mean travel is such a beautiful thing it's yeah. such a individual thing and what floats my boat you know what is my everest is not necessarily somebody else's but wow you have to take a breath you're like see, 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 see now i'm not even sure it's south like... africa yeah i mean <laughs> maybe it's maybe it's a tibetan plateau um i mean hey uh but yeah i'd love to go rock climbing more in in south africa for sure Wonderful. Oh, Kenton, those were your travel diaries. Thank you, Kenton Cool. Fantastic. A huge thank you to Kenton Cool. I really enjoyed that conversation. A lot to take away from it. You can find out more about Kenton's performance initiatives at incoolcompany.com. Thanks so much for listening today. If you'd like to hear more from the podcast, don't forget to hit subscribe or if you use Apple Podcasts to press follow so that a new episode lands in your podcast app each week. If you want to be the first to find out who is joining me on next week's episode, come and follow me on Instagram. I'm at Holly Rubenstein and you'll also find me on threads and TikTok. I'd love to hear from you. And if you can't wait until next week, remember there's the first nine seasons to catch up on. That's over 100 episodes to keep you busy there. Don't forget that all the destinations mentioned by my guests are included in the episode show notes here on your podcast app and listed on my website, thetraveldiariespodcast.com. Thanks again, everyone. Take care and I'll be back next week.
Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 